morning, everybody. It's really good to be with all of you again this Sunday. And I have to admit that I'm a little bit emotional this morning. Um, my internship at Vox is coming to an end pretty soon, and it's flown by uh, amazingly fast. But I also want to let you know you're not getting rid of my wife, Anna, and I that easily. We're, we're planning to stick around. Um, but it has been just a true blessing to be part of this community since last September. Um, I wanted to just also mention that in the summer, on July 16th, Saturday, July 16th, my wife and I will put on another Introduction to Centering Prayer workshop. I know the Vox sign-up is out there, so if you didn't have a chance to participate last fall or this February when we did the workshop, please join us. We'd love to have you come out and spend half a day with us and, and rest in God there. Um, also, my wife and I and a small team of other facilitators will continue to, as Jeff alluded to in the announcements, continue the, morning, the Sunday morning Lexio Divina Centering Prayer Service on Zoom. So we'd love to have you come out to, and join us there as well. To set the stage for our time this morning, a lot of homily speakers here at Vox often give us a question to ponder or even to discuss with our close friends around us. So to keep that tradition alive, I have a question to ponder. But you don't have to share. I just want you to reflect on this particular question. And that question is this. Is it possible to have doubts and still believe in something? Or perhaps to put it another way, can you believe in a cause or hope in something but have doubts along the way? Do doubts indicate a weakness in your faith or commitment to something? So here we are on the second Sunday of Easter, and today's text from the Gospel of John that Jordan read for us earlier is the familiar passage of Doubting Thomas. I think Thomas gets a bad rap in this part of the resurrection story. It is often depicted to us that because he doubted that he had little to no faith or belief in Christ's resurrection. And somehow, because of that, he was not a true disciple in some way. But what about the other ten apostles? Were they firm in their belief, dedicating their life to following Christ without any hiccups? Well, actually, no. We all know that Peter, the leader of the twelve, denied Jesus three times before his crucifixion out of fear and uncertainty. And we all know that Jesus called Peter the rock that he would build his church upon. In the original manuscript of Mark's gospel, not read today, Mark's gospel is the gospel that was written first, back in about year 70 CE. And the original gospel of Mark ends in chapter 16 this way. So early on the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body, found the stone to the tomb rolled back and Jesus' body gone. They saw a young man there dressed in white sitting over to the right, and he says to them in verses 6 and 7, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him, but go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That is how the original gospel of Mark ends. Before years later, when a redaction 
by some other authors claiming to be Mark added verses 9 to 20. Do you think the women at the tomb had doubts? Seems pretty evident that they did. Can you imagine the early readers of the first gospel? (laughs) What a cliffhanger, right? That's how it ends. How do you think they felt? Could they have doubted? We don't know where the disciples ended up after his crucifixion. They had a very different idea of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. They envisioned Jesus as a true king, a warrior that would topple colonial imperialism and establish the Jewish people as a world power after centuries of exile and domination. They felt disenfranchised. I'm sure they did. Did they have doubts? Almost certainly. So a week has gone by, and Jesus appears to the apostles in Galilee, although Thomas wasn't there with them. So only the remaining ten are there. But imagine what they had felt like the whole week from the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection, or so they had been told, to the following Sunday when he appears to them. Seven whole days. Would there have been doubt with them, even despair that it was all for nothing? Absolutely. So then where was Thomas? Biblical scholars offer very little improbable explanation as to why he wasn't there at Christ's first appearance. So I'd like to begin at the end of this morning's text in verses 27 through 29. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is where the not-so-positive nickname Doubting Thomas comes from, right? Somehow the idea that if one doubts, that person is deemed a failure, lacking commitment, or weak. So what then? Are we to be certain in our beliefs without any doubt? Does that make us stronger, being more certain? Someone once told me, certainty is the beginning of unforgiveness. Certainty is the beginning of unforgiveness. Just think about that for yourselves. Have you ever been so certain about something that it isolated you or separated you from relationship with another person? I sure have. Years ago, when my children experienced their certain dad, they came up with a nickname for me, and it wasn't Doubting Thomas. It was Strong and Wrong. Somebody relate with that? Yeah. There was no room for me being wrong, no room for another to be right also. That affected my relationships across all aspects of my life. Certainty creates winners and losers, those in and those out. But this certainty will eventually lead to disillusionment and disappointment, and then finally to disregard for oneself, others, and even God when those certain beliefs are not realized, and they won't be at some point. This has been a challenge for Christianity the last couple of thousand years. The certain belief that Christians are saved and that two-thirds of the world's population is not, 
Certainty has led to the literal interpretation of the Bible that has resulted in the texts of terror that have marginalized, oppressed, and downright disregarded siblings from other faiths, women, our BIPOC, and our LGBTQIA siblings from living into the knowledge that they are part of God's beautiful creative plan. Certainty is all about thinking, not about feeling, not about reaching for understanding and wonder. Brian McLaren, in his book, The Great Spiritual Migration, How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to Be Christian, it's quite a mouthful, he offers this about beliefs. Beliefs are commonly defined as opinions or judgments about which a person or group is fully persuaded. Although beliefs can't be proven, they are treated among believers as certainty, perhaps not absolute certainties, but as certain enough that they are not up for questioning. I had a class in seminary called Difficult Conversations, and one book in particular written by the Reverend Dr. Gregory Ellison, the book was called Fearless Dialogues. This book focused on his pastoral care work with young black men to create safe spaces for them to go to open up about their struggles and their traumas of being stigmatized by society as criminals, bad people. This also allowed other people from different demographic backgrounds to engage with them in this safe space without judgment. In one particular scene of the book, there was a young man named Nathaniel who was willing to open up to a group after a lot of persuasion. He was very reluctant. He had been arrested for selling drugs. I could feel my judgment of how bad that was as the author described his situation as I read it. Then at the climactic point in the story, the young man is sitting there with a couple of mentors and they're questioning him and somehow he felt judged and he stood up in the room and said, you don't know me. My mom's a crackhead. I got two younger sisters. My mom used to prostitute out of our house to get money for crack. I started to sell drugs to earn money and to supply my mom with drugs to keep the men out of our home to protect my little sisters. Silence apparently filled the room as they contemplated that Nathaniel had to make the tough decision to sell drugs, knowing that he's hurting his mother to save his sisters. Before that moment, I could sense my internal judgment, my internal belief, my internal certainty that he was a bad person for selling drugs. I wished after that moment only to see not a drug dealer, but a young man, a priceless child of God that feels so hopeless that everything is crashing down around him, that he chooses the lesser of two evils to protect his younger sisters, knowing he is hurting his mother. What a terrible choice to feel that one has to make. And, that, and Nathaniel's mother, not an addict, but a priceless child of God that feels so unloved and unworthy that she turns to the comfort of drugs to take that pain away. Certainty creates a world of either or, not both and and. There is no room to allow for unknowing. Certainty is indeed the beginning of unforgiveness. These certain beliefs also affect us in our relationship to God. Peter ends in his book, The Sin of Certainty, offers this about how certainty affects our relationship with God. 
When correct thinking is central to faith, we transmit onto God our own distorted mental image of God with all its baggage, its hang-ups, and deep fears. That is a tense faith, which we cover up with cleverness and arrogance and which slides easily to anger and hatred toward those that think differently. So we make God in our own image when we are certain who and what God is. If life is good, God is good. If life is difficult, God doesn't seem to care and we feel as if we're all alone and we abandon all belief. So then what is Christ referring to when he tells Thomas not to doubt but to believe? If it's not about espousing belief, what is it? Brian McLaren offers us this. In contrast to espoused beliefs, faith is conviction, the deep and motivating sense that a course of action is right and worth doing. This conviction, this faith, is lived out in the context of uncertainty. It involves risk and unknown. It proceeds not by certainty, but through a confidence or a hope, the deep and motivating sense that a risk is worthwhile. And again, it seems that Peter ends is in lockstep with Brian McLaren. Ends took this idea of faith and expanded it some more. Belief is all about reason. Faith, which can be viewed more as trust, is an affront to reason. Certain beliefs are what our egos crave. Faith is a conscious decision to trust. Trusting God with all of our hearts is a complete surrender, a life decision to be all in all the time, rather than relying on our own insight, our ability to understand, to fathom, to solve, to figure it out. Trust remains when our reason betrays us, when our reason betrays us, when we don't understand the mysteries of God and faith, when we don't see what God is up to including when God, for all intent and purposes, to us, is not faithful and trustworthy. Let's take a moment to think about our personal relationships now or in the past. Trust is or was a huge element of that relationship, right? Can you think about when someone broke your trust or when you broke someone else's? Trust is always uncertain. It's always risky. Oftentimes, our minds, our egos, they try to convince us not even to open up, not to trust, especially if trust has been broken before. Trust isn't reasonable because it's not based on reason. Reason will close us down. Trust, based on surrender and courage, keeps us open to love. In his book, Peter Enns shared a story of a friend of his that was going through a real rough time in his life, and he had the chance to meet Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And when this person met her, he, he asked her if she would pray for him to have clarity, to have certainty. She said she would not. She offered this to him instead. Clarity is the last thing that you're clinging to, and you must let that go. I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust, so I will pray that you trust God. Christ understood that he had to appear to the apostles for them to have their faith reaffirmed. Don't we all need that proof by some sign at points in our lives, sometimes even more than once, 
I came across this writing by the Reverend Ali Scott last week on Holy Saturday. So this is the time between the death of, of Jesus and the resurrection, when all seems lost. I think she, what she wrote exemplifies how we sometimes feel in life, when we feel like we've lost our faith and that God has truly abandoned us. She wrote this, this year I am finding myself really needing Holy Saturday. I need this space where the shadows of death have not yet given away to new life and resurrection. I need a day where we sit together in those shadows and watch the disciples be unsure of what is coming next. I need some space to say the day after a loved one dies can be harder than the death itself. So can the year after and the year after that. I need a day where some of us speak out loud our fear that we may not survive the violence of Good Friday to make it to Easter morning. I need a day that avoids hallmark platitudes, one that says that everything doesn't happen for a reason, that there's no open window after a door closes, that life is hard, sometimes really, really hard. I need a day where we can name with shaky voices that we are terrified that it may not get any better that our long-held dreams are now broken shards that cut our hands and our hearts. I need a day to remember how the disciples thought that they had to try and piece their lives back together, had to learn to cook for one instead of 13, had to figure out how to live like Jesus without standing right next to him, just like most of us do most days of our lives. I need Holy Saturday because I need assurance that depression doesn't mean faithlessness, the, that mourning doesn't mean hopelessness, that sorrow doesn't mean abandonment. We can sit together and accompany each other through the hard things because even if Sunday's coming, it's not here yet, and that's okay. It is okay, and dare I say part of the human journey God is big enough to handle all we got, all of our lament. What is important to remember about this scripture was that Christ appeared initially to the 10 apostles and then again to Thomas a week later. This symbolizes that it's not just a one-time thing. Christ will reappear for us in times of need each time. But it may not always be on our preferred timeline. This can offer us a sense of hope in knowing that we are loved so much that even doubt in God's unconditional love for us brings Christ back to us repeatedly over and over and over. Christ appears to us behind our locked doors of fear and separation. Christ always comes back to reach inside when we need a lift, when our life is full of doubt. Christ loves us enough to keep showing up inside our locked inner rooms or selves when our faith or trust in God is shaken by life events, tragedies, failed relationships, insecurity for ourselves and our loved ones. That's when Christ wishes to appear in our lives, knowing fully well that we need a landing place. Jesus was telling Thomas and the others present, present to have faith, to have trust and hope in a world that brings about renewal and salvation from death, even when the circumstances look otherwise, when our thinking contradicts it. The faith and hope is for the now and not yet. With the conviction and confidence that God is with us, loving, loving us, suffering with us, 
as Christ did, and showing us that suffering and death don't have the last word. So was Christ challenging Thomas because he needed to return for him to believe? Not at all. Christ was so accepting and empathetic to Thomas's doubt. God knows that's part of the plan, that death and resurrection in us happens over and over. I was struck by the text that was describing Thomas's name. It reads in verse 24, but Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. And I, it seemed odd to me that the gospel writer would go so far as to, to add the line, who was called the twin, when on the surface it doesn't seem to add anything to the story. But as I wrestled with the text, the idea of doubt and faith being two sides of the same coin, perhaps the meaning of identifying Thomas as the twin is because he represents both sides of the two-sided coin in us. Sometimes we are strong in faith, sometimes doubting. God handles both parts of our duality. So I'd like to return to verse 29 one more time. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Jesus isn't suggesting that those who have not seen and believed are blessed in the sense that they are favored. That has often been the implication in that reading of this verse. But the word blessed actually means happy. So it can read, happier are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Someone once told me, and you all, I know you all heard this, happiness is a choice. For years, I laughed at that. I'm like, I wanted to scream at that person. I used to say to myself, do you think I want to be this angry, annoyed, and anxious? And as I reflected on those times, it was only when my egoic expectation of how a certain situation or relationship should be that was falling short. Happiness and joy are only present in moments when we are unencumbered by anxiety and doubt caused by the failure of certainty. This might be an invitation for us to practice happiness in moments despite what is happening around us, in spite of what our minds may be telling us. Those people are happy because they've learned to live with uncertainty, with faith and trust. As Jesus did throughout the gospel, many times he would say, peace be with you. He did so three times in this scripture passage alone. Twice to the ten apostles on his first appearance, and then again to them and Thomas a week later. Christ's peace is the invitation to experience this moment as Christ does with no regret over the past and no anxiety and fear for the future, the eternally present moment of trust and assuredness that God is with us, wounds and all. We just got done sharing the peace with one another as we do in every service. And what we're actually sharing with one another is Christ's peace with our friends and our family. The peace of Christ is an invitation to feel into this resurrected moment that is free from all fear and disillusionment, that we are alone. So I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes. Okay. Now take a deep breath together. And as we notice our breath going in and out, let's think this. Inhaling 
we breathe in Christ's peace. Exhaling, we let go of certainty and fear. Inhaling, we breathe in Christ's peace. Exhaling, we let go of certainty and fear. And let's remember together that God is closer to us than even our own breath. I'd like to close with this final quote from Peter Enns. He reminds us in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight. Trust is letting go and learning to lean on God and not our insight. Then we get a taste at least of true liberation from our attachments, from our fears, and live with freedom and joy. That is the Christian journey. That is resurrection now. Amen.